Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez. Remember to find us on Facebook under Community Board, Twitter Community Board, on iTunes under Community Board Podcast. Today we have a we're honored to have a Dr. Paul Spice Spicer Spicer. Dr. Spicer. Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. Dr. Spicer, where's that last name from? It's uh, British. British? Yeah. Never heard it. Yeah. It means grocer. It means what? Grocer. Grocer? Yeah. Someone who sells food. Oh, like yeah. a... Yeah. I learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. I'm going to call you Paul. Yeah, please. Is that, is that sounds yeah, good? Yeah, please Paul? call me Paul. Paul, um, I was really, really... It was really nice talk that you present today at Mayo Clinic. I was fortunate to be there today. And um, can you share with our friends that are listening, what was your your talk today with an, I don't know, just in a quick uh, summarize, what was your conversation today? Sure. So uh, I was describing work, a series of projects that we've done to try and make genomic knowledge relevant to Native communities, to try and explore the concerns they have about when we talk knowledge. About, sorry for interrupting. When we talk about gen, genomics, what what is genomics? What do you guys look at when you study genomics? So looking at uh, looking at the structure of life, the molecules of life, looking at the DNA of humans, looking at the DNA of the microbes in their body, a variety of approaches that take advantage of our ability to read the code of life. Okay. And how long the genomic studies has been going on? Well, we've had a human genome. We've had a sequence of the mm-hmm. human DNA since around 2000. When and, they yeah. when they put it all together, yeah, right? Yeah, right, when they developed the, the first sequence of a, of a human being. And now we, we have sequences of all sorts of different organisms, including the microorganisms in and on our body. And so what we've been doing is having conversations in American Indian Alaska Native communities about what this knowledge might mean, the good that it could be put to, the concerns that people have about the way it might be abused. And, and, what, and why is it important to work with um, exclusive communities? These are communities that are often the target of attention by mm-hmm. genetic researchers because they're potentially unique human populations. They, be, they were isolated. They're no longer isolated, but they were isolated. There's some potentially unique human variation in American Indian communities, both in North and South America. So there's interest in involving American Indian Alaska Native communities in this work. I see. Yeah, because you mentioned during your conversation that you work with some partners in in Peru, Mm -hmm. correct? Yeah. And do you guys compare some of the uh, gut bacteria? Right. Yeah, so we've done, in this the study I was talking about specifically Mm -hmm. that involved Peru and Oklahoma, we did the same study protocol in both places and with the same goals, which is understanding how diet shapes the microbes in our in our gut and how that's related to health or disease. Okay. And during your presentation, you explained that you guys use a process called CBPR. What is CBPR for our friends that are listening? Yeah, that stands for Community-Based Participatory Research. And the goals of that approach to research are not just to do studies that a scientist finds interesting, but to find research that responds to community concerns and is valued and relevant to what the community cares about. And, you, and they put their input from the beginning? Right, for, in all phases of the research. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's... There's different ways of understanding it. 
the approach that I was defending in my talk this, the, today was one in which the researcher and the community are engaged in a dialogue and try and find something that's mutually satisfying, that makes sense for both of them to do. Okay. And also, uh, really, something that you mentioned also that we need to do, when you say we, the research community, we need to do research that is value for the right. for the communities. That mm -hmm. was really, really nice. I mean... Right. We want research doesn't just advance a scientist's career, but that is potentially relevant to solving a health problem that communities yeah, have. Yeah, and, and also you share that sometimes there is disappointment because there's a lot of research done and, and especially like this community and Native Americans that they, they're not satisfied with the with the findings and and then you mentioned that that's why we need to do relevant Right. Relevant. There's a better chance that we'll do work that is satisfying to communities if it's addressing needs that they've identified to begin with and they've been involved in helping to develop the study. But still, I mean, we as researchers know that a lot of our hypotheses, a lot of the things that we thought would work out don't often work out. And the concern that, that I was addressing in my mm -hmm. talk today is a, a tendency to, for those of us who do research, to try and engage people and get them to participate in our studies, we will often talk in strong ways about the potential benefits of the research. And that's not necessarily going to come to pass. Research is often frustrating and disappointing. Mm -hmm. And yes. so we want to have an honest conversation yeah. with communities about what we might learn, but also about the ways in which we might not learn the things that we expected to learn. And if, if that happens, then what are we going to do? It, what's the next step? If what we thought was going to work out didn't work out, where do we go next? And where, how do we do that together? Mm -hmm. How do we continue this process of inquiry yeah. in ways that are engaged in dialogue between the community and the researcher? Yeah. Also, some notes that I took, uh, to me, was really interesting that you recognize and institutions recognize that there were some institutions. We have failed to some communities to underserved communities to not get them early either at the school, in, interested into these uh, topics. Oh, right. right, in terms of the students, right? Because, Correct, yeah. Yeah, the scientific workforce is not very diverse. Yes. And, and people from the communities Those. that we're interested in learning from are not the scientists, and mm -hmm. we should change that. We would like to see people from communities working with communities to structure inquiry that makes sense. Yeah. In order to do that, we have to reach children. We have to reach them as children, really. Even college is too late. Yeah. We want to reach them as young people. And if they're interested in science, encourage that and support that so that and they can participate. Stage. Right. Yeah. And bring support to those communities. Doctor, I'm Paul. I'm going to call you Paul. Yeah, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul. <laughs> Dr. Paul. Uh, your work that you've been doing, um, your research is uh, you focus on, on over, uh, diabetes. Uh, in an early stage, mm -hmm. and can you share a little bit yeah. with the background? So, so Native communities are, uh, this is true for uh, people who are descended from Native communities mm -hmm. as well, so a lot of Mexican-Americans have similar kinds of issues in uh, a vulnerability to obesity and diabetes. And there are reasons to believe that part of that vulnerability is biological, and it has to do with how people metabolize and the way they process food. But there's also a reason to believe that it has to do with the quality of the food that's available. 
And so people who live in impoverished communities can't necessarily find healthy food, even if they wanted to. Desert. How they call it? Desert. A food desert. Food a food desert. desert. Yeah, for sure. And so we, we really, our study was designed to look at both of those issues, to look at what the quality of food that's out there for people, the choices they're making from the available food, but also then what it means biologically, and in particular what it means in terms of the health of their, the microbes in their gut. Our gut is full of all sorts of microorganisms that facilitate digestion and metabolism and respond to the kind of food that we put in. And so looking at the microbial communities of our gut, which is what our study did, can be a valuable way of looking at risk for disease. And uh, Dr. Paul, I said it right mm -hmm. this time. Uh, other things, the the... I forgot to ask you first for our listenings. Um, you you were you went to Michigan State, correct? I went to the University of Michigan University. as an undergraduate. Yeah, and, and then, then to Minnesota. As yeah, a University student. of Minnesota. Yeah, and now you're you're um, you're in Oklahoma. Yeah, at the University of Oklahoma. Oklahoma. How how do you see? And my question is. Uh, When do you get interested in working with this community, with Native American communities? At the University of Minnesota. So I, at, at the University of Michigan, I, I was an anthrop major, anthropology major all along. Mm -hmm. But at the University of Michigan, I'd never really thought of working in Native communities in North America. I, I had other interests. I was interested in Asia. I wrote my master's thesis on Tibet and Tibetan refugees. So I had different interests. And when I went to Minnesota, I wasn't thinking necessarily that I'd work in American Indian communities either. But when I got to Minnesota and realized the, the ongoing presence of American Indian people in the state, mm -hmm. that started to spark some interest of mine. And then I got involved. I had the good fortune of getting involved in some research on, actually it was on alcoholism, American Indian drinking. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that got me hooked, that got me involved in American Indian issues and I really have continued to do that ever since. So it was really a, a bit of a, a happenstance, a bit of a, a just lucky circumstances that got me involved in work in American Indian communities. But now I've continued to do that. My move to Oklahoma was motivated by an interest in being able to work with the tribal communities there. So it's now, it, now it is where I do my work for mm -hmm. sure. Thank you, Doc. Uh, another question: uh, How? Wh what is the most? What do you find the most joy of your work doing community-based participatory research? What do you? What is the more satisfactory well, experiences think, that you? I have? think when we can when we can find a way of connecting, when we can find a way of connecting what scientists are interested in with what communities are interested in. And that's, that doesn't always happen because scientists have their interests and their priorities and communities have theirs, right? So it can be, what, I, what the, the challenge of the work is in being able to create those connections between researchers and communities. And then what's satisfying is when it actually works, as in the example that I gave this afternoon, where we were able to take a community's interest in diet and the changes that they'd seen in their diet and the rates of disease that they were experiencing and find some of the ways in which that was biologically manifest in, in the, the bacteria of their gut. And that points us then to some possible solutions in terms of changing the quality of food that's out there, in terms of changing people's choices with regard to the food. But again, none of, we're not going to take any of those steps without understanding how the community deals with those issues. And so again, 
rather, I could run off and generate all sorts of ideas about as a researcher about what to do about this problem, but what we need to do is make sure that those fit with what the community is interested in doing. So the, 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 what's satisfying about that work is, is finding those connections. And then I, I just enjoy hearing about people and their perspectives on life and what their priorities are. So getting that opportunity to learn from communities about what they care about is, is certainly a, a very satisfying part. How many nations do you guys work with or tribes? Well, so currently we work with four, five different tribal nations in Alaska, Montana, South Dakota, Oklahoma. Um, over the course of my career, I've probably worked with about a dozen different tribal communities. Um, and uh, the goal in our work is to, is to continue to bring this perspective and these efforts to, to new communities as well. So, you know, There's, there's certainly a value in, and I have very long-term relationships with specific tribal communities that have been partners of mine for a decade or more. Mm -hmm. um, and there's only so many communities that you can develop these relationships with, but um, there's both, both aspects of the work are, are rewarding, both finding new partners and, and establishing new relationships with tribes, and then obviously continuing to build on the, the ones that we already have. Yeah. And every every community is different. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And but I guess but you also share something the respect and trust. I guess that's pretty much across when we're dealing with That's them. yeah. I mean, you have to you have to treat communities with respect or they're not going to even open the door. They're not even going to start the conversation with you. And that's that goes a long way towards establishing that trust in the relationship that it depends on, right? Because what we need for this work to succeed is for both the researcher and the community to be honest about what they need. And if people are holding back because they don't trust somebody, then it's going to be only a partial connection and the work is only going to work so well. So what we really want to invest in is creating a context, a relationship where people really are comfortable expressing themselves and talking about what they need and what they expect and what they're worried about. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Also, um, you mentioned about, uh, there was a phrase that really stuck to me. There it says, I wouldn't buy food from a gas station or where I fill my car? Or oh, yeah, yeah, right. Thing? This is a quote from Michael Pollan, who's a food writer. Okay. Um, and he writes for the New York Times. He wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma. He wrote um, In Defense of Food. And he had, a, I think it was In Defense of Food, maybe, that he had a set of three different rules for healthy eating, mm -hmm. one of which was not to feed yourself where you fuel your car. That yeah. makes <laughs> sense. It makes sense. That's so true. I mean, yeah, I yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, I will give 7-Eleven some credit. They are trying to make healthier food more prominently displayed and more available. Yeah, I was aware, too, um, what this been, it's been happening for a few years. Uh, like in New York, they gave, um, the health department, they give uh, like a tax break to those bodegas or small stores if you have a healthy mm -hmm. items in your store. Right. Depends the square footage you have. Depends how much square footage you have healthy foods you get a uh, tax credit. Right. So that's incentive for both the the owner of that store because they usually struggle and also, you know, they bring good good foods and incentives for the community. Right. And, you know, make the easy choice. What is it the saying? Make the healthy choice the easy yeah, choice. Right. So there you go. Right. 
Yeah. So it's uh, there. There certainly are have been a part of the problem, but they also could be a part of the solution. Definitely. Yeah. If you engage with them. Yeah. Because they all say, well, that doesn't sell, yeah. or or it's healthy food doesn't last as long as a Twinkie or exactly. something. Exactly. Well, nothing lasts as long as a Twinkie. <laughs> I know. Even. <laughs> Even for uh, where there's a movie where the zombie apocalypse comes and then that's the only thing left over. It's Twinkies yeah. and cockroaches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doug, uh, how long you been down in, in Oklahoma? Did you move so, there? Yeah, after? We, yeah so, we, uh, so I graduated. I got my Ph.D. in Minnesota from the University of Minnesota mm-hmm. in the cities in 1995, and we moved to Colorado in 95. And we were in Colorado from 95 till 2008. And in the fall of 2008, we moved to Oklahoma. And you also work with some tribes, right? Yeah. In Colorado? Uh, well, less so in Colorado, but the work in Colorado was national. So I was working in Dakotas. I was working in Arizona. I was working in Alaska when, okay. I, when I lived in Colorado. There are very few tribal nations in Colorado, I, although I did work certainly in the Denver Indian community. Okay. Yeah. And, and well, I'm assuming knowing the the struggle with the Native Americans, Indian Indian community in, in the Twin Cities, in the urban cities. Is that the same case in in Oklahoma? There are definitely some challenges for folks in, in for Native folks in, in urban mm-hmm. environments. Yeah, there's also opportunities. So people are drawn to the cities um, for a variety of, of motivations. But um, because there is not necessarily the same kind of certainly ongoing traditional cultural community, there are some challenges uh, in terms of urban life for, yeah. for Native folks. Uh, at the same time, that's where the jobs are, which is often that's why true. people are there. So, yeah, so there's, it's both good and bad, but it's urban communities tend to be much more mixed tribally. So there are people from multiple different tribal communities who've come to a city. It's not usually just one tribe. And that's true even in Minneapolis, where you'd think that most people are from Minnesota. Lots of people from the Dakotas, lots of people from Wisconsin as well. So it, back in the 90s when I was working there, it's a pretty diverse tribal community. I see. Um, what is the thing that you most miss from Minnesota besides the winter? Uh, no, I actually, I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I miss the winter, <laughs> but it's comforting to me to know that there are still some places on Earth that get cold. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so, especially given the kinds of climate change that are, that are predicted. So... Um, I, I miss the, the politics of civic culture. I miss the, um, the relatively progressive, community-minded spirit of Minnesota. You don't find that in Oklahoma, and uh, we didn't really find that in Colorado, too. So Minnesota's really a unique place when it comes to people coming together and solving problems and thinking about their neighbors and, and those sorts of things. It's, uh, it's, I don't think Minnesotans necessarily know how unique they are in that regard. And now that I've spent time, grew up in Detroit— spent time in Colorado, now spend time in Oklahoma, where there's much less of that kind of commitment to the public good. So that's certainly, but my wife, who was born and raised here in Minnesota, certainly misses that dearly. Okay. She does not miss the cold. And the casserole also. <laughs> and what? And the casserole also. Oh, the hot dish? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, we're vegetarian, so, oh, only, vegetarian. so there's only so much hot dish we can How long have you been vegetarian? So uh, probably about, I've been vegetarian probably about 10 years, my wife about 20. My daughter's been vegetarian all her life. Okay. And how was that transition for you? 
or beginning? Well, you know, I, so it was uh, I joke that I, I became a vegetarian when I moved to Oklahoma because it was so easy, which it's not, right? But, no, it's at least that. No, like they're surrounded by capital. barbecue. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, but it's it's good. It's not hard if you you just have to, you know, there's certain things that just what would it be the first on the menu. Step? What would it be the first step for somebody considering? To want to become a vegetarian? Yeah. Uh, yeah, but probably, uh, well, I don't know. A lot of people give up red meat first, so they okay. would give up hamburger. Right. Do you eat eggs? Not anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. Okay. That, eggs and cheese are the last things that I've given up. I see. Another thing, uh, another recommendation. What would it be a recommendation for somebody who would like to start in CBPR, community-based participatory research? A researcher, a new researcher, younger researcher who, what would it be a recommendation? Uh, to, to go and engage a community. So if you think you have something to offer a community, that there's some fit between your expertise and what a community may need, then start that conversation. Don't start that conversation just because you have a grant to write. Don't start that conversation because you need to do a project. Start that conversation independent of that pressure and see if there aren't some areas where you have some common objectives and ideas where you can move forward. It's much better to do that. Communities are constantly approached by researchers who have deadlines and have proposals they want to write, and that's hard to do under that kind of circumstance. And not to say that those are doomed efforts, because sometimes good things do come from that effort as well, especially if you get the money. But um, it's much better if you can have if that conversation can unfold with less pressure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, doctor, and thank you for visiting us today. And oh, sure. Enjoy the spring in Minnesota. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's cold today, right? Well, but it was nice and warm yesterday. I know. Yeah, so. well, relatively. How's the weather down there? Down there, it's storm season, so you know we get severe weather in Oklahoma. So it's uh, oh. it's definitely uh, it's a it's a little bit of a nerve wracking. Oh yeah, that's where the tornado. Yeah, come. we get tornadoes. Yeah. And uh, we saw of us, right? The what? Mo that's where the Wizard of Oz is based? Uh, there's Kansas. Oh, but, okay. Uh, tornado yeah. Alley. But, uh, yeah, tor is it is Tornado Alley. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you saw the movie Twister? That was filmed in Oklahoma. Yeah. Oh, Mom. that movie gave me nightmares. Yeah. I'm not kidding. No, it's it, they're, they're scary storms. But yeah. fortunately, they're small, and they, what they actually, the damage they do is relatively limited, and we know they're coming. But that's what makes it nerve-wracking, because you know they're coming. All right. Well, stay safe. and All right. Have good safe travels. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you for staying. Mm -hmm. And Bye. now remember, guys, give us a like, follow us on Twitter on their community board, Facebook community board, and subscribe to to the community board podcast on iTunes, and go find more information about Dr. Paul Spicer. Spicer, so little Spicer, <laughs> Dr. Paul Spicer. Learn about his work in our site on under smartright network.net. Stay tuned.